Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome back to New Books and Intellectual History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Alexandra Otolia Baird, a host of the channel, and today I'm talking to Louisiane Ferlier and Benedict Miyamoto, editors of the new volume, Forms, Formats, and the Circulation of Knowledge, British Printscapes Innovations, 1688-1832, to published by Brill in 2020. We always like to begin the show by asking um, our guests to just tell us a little bit about themselves and your research and perhaps how this kind of personal and research background perhaps brought the volume about. Okay, well, I'm a senior lecturer at the University of Sorbonne Nouvelle in Paris. And uh, I'm Lucienne Ferlier and I'm the Digital Resources Manager at the Royal Society Centre for the History of Science. Um. The, the book is is actually edited by by um, me, an art market historian, and Louisiane, a historian of, of ideas. And we suddenly realised that we overlapped on book history. That, that was quite a long time ago um, when we were fellow PhD candidates at Paris Diderot University, now Université de Paris, and we were both working on the 18th century uh, in the British Isles, and we. Um, we uh, we were part of a Adam Smith seminars, uh, the Adam Smith seminars of Professor Robert Menkin, um, to whom the book is dedicated. Actually, um, I was working on uh, the trade of pictures in London and uh, looking at all the artists and the auctioneers um, in London around the Royal Exchange, the Soho Covent Garden, uh, Pall Mall, and uh, Louisiane was actually working on the trade of books and. Quaker print sellers also in London. And so we realized we were poring over the same maps for our dissertation. And so we organized a joint talk on the mapping of London artifacts trade. Um, and that's how our friendship began and took a very material material turn. Um, and then um, Louisiane had the opportunity with the Center for the Study of the Book and the Bodleian Library um, to organize uh, a conference while she was lecturing at the University of Oxford uh, following her PhD. And so she set up the most amazing conference on forms and formats, experimenting with print in 2014. And that's when that's when she called me on board. Um, it was a great conference because of this um, material attention. Um, there were copies of the relevant works from the host libraries, um, that the speaker chose. Um, um, so there, those works were displayed with each paper coming from the Bodleian Library or Jesus College Fellows Library and the Oriel College Senior Library. And so each paper ended up becoming an interactive object lesson between the curators, the librarians, and the historian in the audience. And it was an amazing time. Um, we, we even got to try our hands at the different steps of the printing process on the antique Oxford University presses at the Story Museum. So that was a, a fantastic conference organized by Louisiane. And from it, actually, the suck- second subject of the book arose during that conference um, because we suddenly realized we were always ending up with the frictions between the circulation of knowledge and copyright. So I ended up organizing a second conference with Louisiane at the Sorbonne Nouvelle in 2016, um, and also with fellow organizers Will Slaughter, Sarah Picard, 
and Emmanuel Avril. And that's, that's how the book came about. And it's so fascinating how book history is often that meeting point between different fields um, of historians, um, which is perhaps something that we might come back to uh, later in the interview. But um, absolutely. Kind of, sorry, sorry, uh, Louisiane. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, the book really um, symbolizes the interdisciplinary nature um, of book history, but also of the department where Benedict and I um, did our doctoral studies, maybe to give um, you a little bit more context as to um, how we came to it. Um, the department at Paris Diderot University um, is titled Anglophone Studies. Um, and you can find these type of departments across Europe, really. Um, and in some ways, they correspond to area studies because they cover cultural studies, literature, history. But um, rather than defining um, a geographical area, it focuses on language as um, the unifying theme. And I think this context, this interdisciplinary context, has really shaped both our approaches really deeply. Um, and um, as Benedict mentioned, the book is dedicated to my PhD supervisor, Professor Robert Mencken, who we sadly lost in, in 2017. And I really think that um, the book is a continuation of the discussions that I was lucky enough to have with him um, as part of his um, doctoral supervision, where we discussed the material, the intellectual and the commercial forces that shape knowledge. Um, to say maybe a little bit more about um, Benedict's research, uh, doctoral research and my doctoral research, um, I looked at the circulation of ideas in the 17th century and early 18th century in, in Britain, Europe and the American colonies. Um, my dissertation was an intellectual biography of the serial convert and mathematician George Keith, uh, of whom no one will have heard about, but is a fascinating figure. Um, and the questions that I looked at um, really concentrated around geographical and religious mobility. And I was looking at his very, very large book production from Scotland to the Dutch Republic, from Pennsylvania to England, and um, was interested in, in, in questions of how religious and scientific discourses were formatted to appeal to different audiences. So um, although I suppose my dissertation would primarily be related to the history of idea, book history was, was there um, at the core really from the beginning. And um, and then I, as uh, Benedict has already mentioned, I was lucky enough to delve closer and closer into the materiality of text through a fellowship at the Bodleian Center for the Study of the Book and a wonderful postdoctoral opportunity um, to join the digital project Library Without Walls at UCL Center for Editing Lives and Letters, which was then headed by Force of Nature um, and Historian of Science, uh, Professor Lisa Jardine. And it is from there that I've, I have joined the Royal Society to work um, primarily to digitize the philosophical transactions. And I, I haven't left the Royal Society since. Um, but let me stop here so that Benedict can tell you maybe a little bit more about how she came to book history um, from studying the British art market. Um yeah, I think that's a common thread we have is that we we didn't start in book history, but we got attracted to book history, which I think happens a lot to um, to PhD researchers when they um, get into libraries and they get immersed in the world of rare books. Um, my dissertation was in art market studies. Um, it examined how painting was perceived um, throughout the long 18th century in 
Great Britain. So I was looking at the cultural value and the legitimacy of the taste for painting. But I realized quite quickly that neither moral nor aesthetic values could account entirely for the value of painting at the time. It, it Of course, it included a, a commercial component. And I started looking into how it was influenced by the art agents, the merchants, um, as well as the artists themselves. So they were all busy redefining, promoting their professions, starting auction houses, etc. And um, so I looked at how they were operating as middlemen to bring pictures and public together, um, how they influenced a large, larger public's relationship to art. And this was done especially, and that's how, you know, I, I got interested also in, in the theory behind the book history, is it happened also because they promoted collecting on a small scale. They, they promoted things like um, chimney piece or small vedutas that are normally not looked at so much by art historians whose discipline is into aesthetics. Um, and so they all this this network put painting within the reach of a larger public and they redefined the pedagogical value of those paintings but also the pleasure principles behind them and and those are actually questions both uh, centralist and empiricist that also preoccupied uh, a lot of the contributors to our books about forms and format Thank you both. That's so so helpful to see how you really kind of got to the to the volume. But could you perhaps tell us then a little bit about what your motivations really were? You know, what are some of the changes? What are some of the kind of developments um, that we're seeing with forms, formats, and the circulation of knowledge? Absolutely. Maybe before I let uh, Benedict um, reply on a more theoretical um, aspect of our motivations, um, just on a personal note, I, I'd like to say that we wanted to put together this book because. The um, speakers at the two conferences that Benedict has already mentioned were just wonderful. And so what we wanted was to share with as many people um, the enthusiasm that we had for those presentations. And I really, really do hope that readers are going to be able to um, enjoy each and every one of the chapters. Um, I think we were both warned that editing a book is a long road. Um, and I'd like to say that even after re-re-re-re-reading the chapters, I kept on being excited by uh, each of the contributions, and um, I yeah I, I really think that the quality of um, of the interventions is the first thing that motivated us. But I'll let Benedict respond more um, on on the academic motivation behind the book. Well, yeah, the um, the theoretical question of of the book of you know forms, format, and copyright. Um, it, it wasn't just theoretical. I mean, it became vividly material. Um, in both our trajectories, uh, because I mean, Louisiane moved to her Royal Society project. Um, I took I took up fellowships in rare book libraries, so we we really became immersed in rare books. And um, of course, we wanted to honour the amazing contributions, um, but also we realised that um, something had happened between the two conferences. We really wanted to dig deeper and to follow up on all the coherent threads running through the papers. Um, some of the papers actually happened to pair so well from one conference to the other. Um, for example, on, on geographical knowledge, um, there's a chapter by Is uh, Isabella Alexander, and that responds to a chapter by Katie Parker. 
Um, and I think it's actually a great plus that you can't even tell which one was at which conference from the book. So there's really sort of a, um, a coherence that, that happened. Um, I, also, um, um, some of the contribution mined a very rich vein of primary source material um, that we really thought deserved to be better known. Um, things like the mortality bills and the news reports on unfortunate accidents. Uh, that's the chapter from Craig Spence. Or the amazing advertising prospectuses um, from David Duff's chapter. Or the turnips um, in Jacqueline Raid Walsh's chapter. Um, I have to say that also what made it easier, um, I mean, our, our motivation was very high. But what made it easier is the immediate supportive answer of Andy, uh, Andrew Pettigree uh, from Brill series, The Library of the Written World, um, The Handpress World. And that, that was, of course, an added motivation, an added help. Um, it's, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure to work with a series that is, well, not only very respectful of the text and the chapters we sent them, but also that was very respectful of the paratext. Um, I mean, Lucian and I um, care deeply about the index that we created, for example, um, and and we got we we got the same care on the other end of the copy editing and the typesetting. Um, I mean, Brill Brill is a publication house that cares so much for book history that it actually has its own font, uh, which you know that's a fact we were quite attracted by. But um, we also thought it was meaningful to have a 17th century publishing institution uh, for our book. We were quite chuffed by that um, because Brill started in 1683. So we quite liked that fact. And it's so important, you know, this is, this is, as you say, this is such a process and to be part of a very kind of understanding and very enthusiastic um, publishing house, I think is, makes the experience so much higher for all involved. Um, and I just kind of want to point out here, uh, it's, it's very unfortunate that this is exclusively audio, um, but the book has, you know, really incredible um, images in it, which is something that for those interested in book history or just the topic more generally, um, I think will find very, very intriguing and very satisfying because, um, you know, unlike many other volumes, you know, the, the, the focus on the visual and material element um, is also kind of mirrored in the images which are available. Now, I, I just want to kind of, before we, we kind of dig into the chapters um, more specifically, could you just give listeners a, a, a kind of broad outline of the scope of the book? Um, well, the, the volume um, revisits, uh, I mean, it's not a new issue, format is not a new issue, but it, it revisits this central issue in the history of the printed book, um, namely the relationship between format and meaning. Um, how the choice of format and the physical shape of the book plays a role in determining what a book means and how it's received. Um, what we've really underlined with um, the, the general scope of the book is that the choice is not solely the authors or the publishers. Um, we see all through the chapters the works of printers, typographers, and also readers' response involved in the choice of um, format. So the contributions weigh these choices also against many frameworks, the legal framework, the material limitations, and the economic reality of the printing trade. Also, um, what is important to underline is that it does so over a very broad 
knowledge terrain. Um, very often in the questions of uh, the relationship between format and meaning, um, you go through the literature genres, for example, the, the folios for encyclopedia and the quartos for drama plays. Um, but in, our, in the book, uh, we range from geography to popular religions to book auctions, celebrity uh, literature, children's literature, um, disaster reporting. So we're hoping to actually have given a much larger printscape um, to, to this uh, central issue. And just to pick up on that term, Printscape, I was wondering, um, because it's such a wonderful title, you know, the British Printscape's Innovations. Um, could you possibly elaborate on this this term, Printscape, which I'm, I'm pretty sure you, you must have coined in response to James Raven's um, bookscape, I, I'm, I'm assuming here. Um, but what, what exactly makes up this early modern Printscape? And what are the advantages, do you think, of expanding this term to encompass the entirety of the world of print? Or is it really even the entirety of the world of print? Or is it kind of um, slightly more stratified? Um, you're exactly right. I mean, the, the, we're, we're We've coined that term um, to follow up on the term bookscape. Um, so that, that's the title of James Raven's um, 2014 tome. Um, and it was first coined by him for his 2010 Panizzi lectures at the British Library. And it, it, it was um, such a useful term. It was immediately taken up um, also for its capaciousness um, by all book historians, for example, um, by Robert Danton in the case for books as soon as 2010. So we've, we've inscribed the volume in this um, idea of the bookscape, this revisionist reinterpretation of Elizabeth Einstein, Eisenstein, sorry, um, offering, we, we think, a useful genealogy of book history, following on from the likes of D.F. Mackenzie, Adrian Jones, and, and also Jean Seckard. Um, but by using Printscape, we're hoping to extend it to encompass other printed formats. Um, we hope it encompasses the variety of printed formats in our volume. And, and the chapters actually demanded it. Um, if I make the less list of all the things that, can, uh, that, that are in the chapters, most of them can barely be called books. Um, things like slips, turn-up books, uh, prospectuses, funeral tickets, globe gores. Um, with the term Printscape, we encompass a, a wider mental mapping of knowledge, um, this mental mapping within which book publishing took place um, through things like owning, reading and making books and other print formats. I think um, what we were trying to do as well by extending the term was, um, as we mentioned in the introduction, was to deconstruct um the importance given to books over other print formats. The, the book is often so fetishized as a format, um, and we felt that this fetishization uh, obscured the wealth of printed material which is in circulation in a period. Um, I think the idea of um, knowledge bound so tidily um, between um, two boards is very appealing. But in reality, early modern readers would have encountered knowledge in a variety of formats and definitely a mess of papers. Um, as James Raven, who contributes himself to the volume, establishes in, in chapter two, we are really, really biased um, in our approach to the printscape by the very poor survival rates of those um, 
less worthy formats of uh, single sheets. Um, and the, the archives often have poor information about um, the other formats. Um, when you look at a catalog, it is quite difficult to find a prospectus. Uh, it will not be cataloged as such individually. Um, but beyond the question of whether something is bound or unbound, um, our printscape is also rich because it considers other paper productions, um, such as globes, games printed on papers, paper inserts, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and let us not forget that the printscape um, also didn't um, appear in isolation. It is complete complemented. Um, within the circulation of knowledge by um, oral and manuscript forms. So, um, yeah, we're extending the bookscape to the printscape, but there is there's much to be said for just um, looking more widely at the circulation of knowledge um, through all of the different forms in which uh, it occurred. Well, let's maybe turn then to actually look at some of those um, forms now. And your joint introduction to the volume is is enticingly called The Shape of Knowledge. Um, it's, it's a lovely title. Um, could you tell us a little bit about some of these actual shapes that print was taking during the period, perhaps for those who are less familiar, um, either with kind of book history or, or maybe perhaps the period or, or Britain in particular, and maybe tell us a bit about why it's really so important to consider print format specifically when we're thinking about the early modern British printscape? Yes, yeah, thank you for picking up on this point. I think this is really at the core of what um, we hope to be the book's message uh, just to give listeners a bit of background, as Benedict has already mentioned, um, this importance of, of shapes or form um, for print is not something new. So um, eminent historian of the book, Roger Chartier, already demonstrated in the 1990s um, that the forms taken by a text influence their circulation and, and reception by different audiences. So for, for listeners who are not familiar with the topic, um, please do um, read um, Chartier's landmark Forms and Meanings, um, Text, Performances and Audiences from Codex to Computer. It's, it's just a wonderful um, volume um, if you want to know more on this. Um, when, when we think of the shapes given to paper in the early modern British printscape, um, there, there are obvious variations uh, between book formats. So you have really, really small books that are designed to fit in, in the palm of your hand or in your pockets. Um, I think the smaller one I've ever encountered is called something like a sexagesimo quarto um, and is a very minimal edition. But you also have extremely large, luxur luxurious folio editions. So even if you just restrict yourself to looking at books, you have this, this really rich variety of formats. Um, and it has to be said that shapes and sizes do matter in this instance because they come in cost um, and um, thereby dictate the size and the socioeconomics of the audiences that um, any text can, can reach. But um, there are fields of knowledge that I think also resist any standardized structure um, that the book can have. So for instance, um, scientific illustrations um, have to play with notions of scale and therefore they justify the fact that um, you may have a book of a certain size but you will need to insert foldouts, um, larger pieces of paper inserted within a volume. A great example of this is Robert Hooke's um, Micrographia, the famous volume um, of microscopic observations where 
where some of the plates, if you look at them physically, uh, measure up to nearly twice the size um, of the page that they're attached to. Uh, but beyond the book, um, geographical knowledge, for instance, um, needs to circulate through formats which, which, which um, are less regulated, less standardized. So obviously through maps, um, but early board games or globes. Um, and I think this is really due to the uh, nature of geography. Um, you need a variety of representations and, and printed formats um, to accommodate the discipline itself. Um, so all these considerations are, I think, crucial specifically for the period that we're looking at, um, specifically for the uh, uh, late 17th century and up until the 19th, because this is really the moment when the printed press has reached technological maturity. Um, but it's also a time when you have new legislations that are being passed, uh, which will shape fundamentally the notion of copyright. That being said, um, early modern Britain is certainly not the only important place or time to consider the shape of knowledge. Um, and um, I hope that our introduction bears a clear invitation for scholars who um, study, for instance, logographic languages. Um, I really hope that um, they can contrast how knowledge circulated in their cultural context um, to what we've done for, uh, for Britain. Um, formats necessarily have to adapt to script, to practices, to legal, legal and commercial factors. Um, so we, we, I think we, we really hope that this is also an invitation to consider something else than the British Prinscape. Um, I think it's fair to say that we dearly need a, a truly global history of print written by scholars of different academic and linguistic backgrounds. Um, there's been a, a really good um, attempts to do this, but if you look at, for instance, um, the uh, uh, book entitled A Book of Global History, which was put together by uh, Woodhausen and Suarez, um, Burton have about 30 pages, I think if I remember correctly, um, while there's only 10 pages um, devoted to sub-Saharan Africa. Um, so. Um, our book certainly continues this imbalance in the scholarship, um, but at least we hope to have invited other scholars to uh, take the take the the flag forward um, to look at different places and different times as well. Absolutely, and I think you make that very very clear in your introduction. But I think we also might pick up on this a little bit later in the interview. But before we do, um, something uh, just thinking about this idea of adaptability that you've brought up. One of the types of kind of print that you you kind of really focus on in your introduction are compendia. I was wondering if you could possibly give us just some of the, some of the kind of rich examples that you kind of provide in your introduction, and really explain perhaps why these compendia particularly tell us quite a lot about how knowledge was circulating in the period. I think we could do this by by taking one of the extreme examples from our book. Um, one of the subtitles from our uh, joint introduction is, um, I quote, since the sizes of books could not all agree. Um, and, and it's this question which comes from a very bizarre compendium um, that I was privileged to look at at the Folger Shakespeare Library. It's um, Vademecum, uh, titled Visus Libelli, and it's 800-leaf copy bursting at the seams of a, of a very, very tiny format with a nine-centimeter spine. Um, I don't know if I can make you feel the, you know, the material feel of it just by description. Um, but it, it's basically a cut-and-paste selection of printed manuals. 
And it's literally just cut and paste because sometimes the text is cut right through mid-lesson and it's pasted on part of a map or a Cartesian diagram and then it's all put together, Um, which, you know, it it doesn't really work in the end. It becomes becomes an unusable compendium. Um, And it's... Its author has scribbled as a foreword, um, boasting, you know, this book will save you the trouble and pains of carrying and turning great many book packages. Um, and so that, that, that's the idea of, you know, adapting so much that in, in the end, in some of the extreme cases, it becomes unusable. But to us, um, this was interesting because it, it speaks about the period's anxiety for making knowledge both exhaustive but also accessible. Um, And I think it's important for us as book historians because it warns us against applying the the fetishism that Wiesian was talking about earlier in the the interview. Um, The fetishism for the bound book, you know, this bound book symbolizing knowledge harnessed and controlled, perfected in a way. Um, And if we apply it onto... The 18th century thirst for learning, we're forgetting a little bit of something. Um, we're forgetting, for example, that the compiler of the Visus Libelli, once he had bound all this cut and paste material, he couldn't actually resist adding a bit more. And so he sort of saw, saw um, he had it, um, another added manuscript sewn in uh, after the volume was bound. It's like a never ending. Uh, compilation. And I, I think just to um, build on this, you have the same sense of um, a never-ending quality of publication, um, even in formats that some people might think as being quite tidy um, and uh, which are really at the core of the period. Um, I'm, I'm thinking here, for instance, of periodical publications. Um, from broadsheets to um, scientific periodicals, such as the Royal Society's own philosophical transactions, you end up having the same um, same idea than what Benedict was just talking about, where you have just the constant arrival of news the, that means that you're required to keep on publishing, keep on adding. Um, there's a very large volume of essays which was published in the same series and hours in 20, 2016, um, edited by Joe uh, Raymond and Noah Moxham, which um, looks at uh, early, the early modern um, news um, news making and how news was gathered, edited, published, um, and circulated. But in our own volume, um, Craig Spence, for instance, um, considers the, how um, periodicals were uh, adapted to certain subject matters. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting is that he could show how women played a particular role in the reporting of accidents and death. And so by considering um, other types of collections uh, beyond Compendia, um, I think you get to see um, and reveal um, actors who are not who are too often neglected. Um, so looking at, at messy uh, or more complicated type collections, I think, and less canonical formats is, is a good way to discover how um, people participated in, in this collecting effort. And you draw attention really to how this variety of formats was 
really required to basically ensure that knowledge was circulating at its most kind of efficient way during the period. And I was just wondering if you could perhaps tell us a little bit about some of the repercussions of this desire for efficiency um, for some of those new kind of elements such as copyright and contracts and the financial transactions which go on um, within the kind of printscape. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, copyright is essential to um, what we're looking at as well. Um, the period is is the time when um, we have the first act that um, proclaims to be a, a, a copyright act. It's the status of Anne. And at its core, um, it is saying that it's trying to encourage learning. This is what the act is supposed to, to do. Um, and that question of whether copyright was an encouragement to learning or whether um, it was a restriction is really at the core of the chapters by Jeffrey Hope, um, Isabella Alexander and uh, Rebecca Shoff-Curtin. What we see is that the act um, created monopolistic propriety rights for booksellers and, and publishers. Um, it gave them really uh, extra weight in choosing formats um, and um, these rights were then um, used um, to restrict the dissemination of knowledge rather than encourage it. So um, the tensions uh, were relieved inside the profession in practice. Uh, it was really a practical and, and constant um, moment of transactions where, in fact, some copying took place when you could change the format, when improvements on the text were made. Um, so for instance, um, when you had um, different uh, different editions, when you had a change of format, a, a compilation or a compendia uh, uh, being created, then the bookseller or the publisher would, would relinquish part of their copyright. They would accept that um, a new product was being created and that they had um, to relinquish some of their rights. Um, and generally speaking, I think the printscape is built upon innovative forms of transactions. Um, as James Raven's opening chapter reminds us, the the, the books, um, as in the financial books of the printers, uh, had to be filled um, with regular orders of small jobs to be profitable. Um, you couldn't finance book printing without the printing of single sheets. Um, and um, both Rebecca Schofkurtz and Isabella Alexander's chapters, I think, established very convincingly um, the transactional origins of even copyright in Britain, generally speaking. Well, let's move then to the first section of the book, um, which is entitled Informing Professional Networks in uh, being in um, brackets there. So we've got informing and forming professional networks. Um, and this section includes contributions on jobbing printing in early modern London. So we've already mentioned James Raven. Um, there's a chapter on the bookseller John Dunton on copyright issues in the stationer's company records and in geographical publications and also um, the Vauxhall Fray. Could you tell us then um, a little about the different types of printing networks that existed in the British um, printscape of this period and their role really in circulating knowledge? So this is going beyond, I suppose, the forms and formats themselves, but back then further to the networks behind them. Well, yes, and, and the, the the first part of the book is, is in, indeed preoccupied with this ecosystem of trades and materials. Um, that, that were used in the Printscape in London. And this, 
it investigates this whole network and it does so uh, with um, you know interdisciplinary scholars because we have uh, book historians with James Raven uh, but also modern historians with Yvonne Cornish um, legal scholars with um, Alexander and Trof Curtin and and literature professors such as Jeffrey Hopes um, and there, there's been overwhelming attention paid to the publisher who sell the books in book history. Um, but what this first part uh, does is that all those chapters show they relied on ancillary traits, um, be it from those who founded the types uh, to those who engraved the plates to who bound the books. Um, so the, print, the printed paper was at the centre of a huge amount of, of, of trade, a trade network. Um, so in book history, a lot of attention has also been devoted to how the monopoly of the stationers' company um, shaped the network of the book trade. Um, so um, to give a bit of feedback, the, the, the livery company, uh, which had the monopoly on book production from its royal charter, um, and, and, and the very name of copyright is derived uh, from the act of entering a copy in the register book of the stationer's company. Um, it, it's a word that marks that a bookseller owns a specific text. Um, so for sure, the company shaped the British printing network. Uh, but for instance, in our first part, uh, Geoffrey Hopes shows how even established bookseller, such as John Dunton, um, skirted around the monopoly um, try to sort of outdo, outpace the centralizing force. Um, for example, he started selling uh, the stock abroad or making auctions. So more generally, um, the attention to the company in book history, um, a little bit like um, institutional history generally um, in the discipline of history, um, it sort of obscures the agency of the actors um, inside the trade. Um, this this agency is not officially recognised. Uh, it's very hard to find the records of it. And um, the, our first part, we hope, shows that these networks, these trade networks, were continuously oiled by frictions and by practical accommodation um, that are not on record for for the most part, and which are revealed specifically by format. Um, because the format reveal this ongoing cooperation. Um, I mean, just as the material were fitted to the form in the printing press rooms, um, the actors also accommodated their trades. Um, they cooperated. Um, they made transactions. And um, I think that's how it's, it's important to see that this is how knowledge circulated and that's why it circulated so fast, sometimes adulterated, but uh, quite fast, despite this heavily centralised um, monopolistic machine at the top of it. Now, in your introduction, you also argue that the distribution of knowledge was a result not only of you know, the intellectual impetus of authors, but also by material and legislative and commercial factors. And, you know, as, we, as you've just made very clear, this kind of network um, uh, that people were a part of. Um, but this latter dimension of commercial factors that I've mentioned really does come out quite strongly in the first section of the volume. So I was wondering if you could explain perhaps some of the ways in which this kind of financial dimension bore quite 
quite direct effects on the distribution of knowledge in the period? Um, yes, we, we've, we've really tried to underline the commercial ramification of knowledge um, distribution um, and, and, and tried to go further than the, the, the classic differentiation between you know, the book price and then the book cost. Um, we actually hope that this first part of the book can help uh, book historians to see more clearly the book as a risk. Um, I mean, all publishers faced very high um, upfront um, costs. Um, they were faced with one-off investments for the most time. Um, and these were coupled with um, potentially very, very slow returns, um, if you think about um, subscription publishing, for example. So this liquidity predicament they were faced with heightened um, the importance for them um, to have on their schedule, to have on their books, um, things that were surefire calculable undertakings, things like you know f- sheet fraction- fractional printing, slips, blank forms, um, re-edition of tried and tested books, but in smaller formats or abridgments or compendiums. Um, these were risk-averse solutions, and, and this first part shows that they were actually central to the printing community, at least to the printing community's survival or you know, ec- economic health. So these, the printing house practices, it can help us recover, have to do with you know, patronage structure and um, just general economic usages, such as the importance of cash flow, um, the the uh, the importance of a steady turnover, uh, like in jobbing, for example, um, the the reliance of a lot of the presses on things that could be called hot off the press, you know, things that were easily compiled, easily consumed, for example, the four to ten leaves printed text um, of the Vauxhall Affray and in in Yvonne Cornish's chapter, uh, or the innumerable disaster ballads um, in Craig Spence's chapter that all start with titles like A True Relation of the Many Sad and Lamentable Accidents, and which are only two or three leaves. Um, and I, I have to say that um, this this was actually very important to us, to, to Louisiane and I. And at the editing stage, we really took care to reinforce this commercial and financial causes and consequences um, I, I think the index bears out the importance of these themes. Um, the, the, the financing side of the business of books is is one of the super main of the index. Um, and uh, if you go to it, we really hope you, you um, oh, the readers, uh, the listeners will. Um, we have recurring subheadings under each professional entries. Uh, for example, we've made entries for publishers, booksellers, mapmakers, typographers, and even authors, yes. But specifically for the printer's entry, we have a lot of those financial and commercial uh, subheadings, such as um, debt, uh, bankruptcy, cost, um, capital invested and cash flow. Um, we look into accounting, income, um, things like work rate for pressmen. Um, labor and stock for map makers. And we've done the same thing also for the material side. Um, we look at cost. Uh, we have a sub entry for quantity for paper. 
um, for type. Also, we, we have like reuse and importation. So those are really, uh, we hope, the, the, the structure uh, of the chapters that you can find in this first part. And so the book then moves in the second part, um, you know, away from these, these networks to talking about what you call performing knowledge in print. And this is the section where we're presented with contributions on this, this sumptuous diversity of formats and techniques. So this ranges from, from globes, which you've mentioned, and newspapers. But there are also contributions about typography, about turn-up books, which is absolutely um, magnificent, um, and things like prospectuses as well. I was wondering if for listeners you could explain perhaps what you actually mean by performing knowledge here and maybe outline a couple of ways in which different print forms were shaping or altering or enhancing actually the forms of knowledge that they disseminated. Yes, for sure. Um, the performative quality of print as a media is, is really a crucial dimension for book historians. And I've already mentioned uh, Roger Chartier's book earlier. Uh, but I think the uh, second part um, of the volume um, considers how this performance takes place in, in broadly two ways. Um, first of all, it looks at how printed formats need to be performed um, to unleash the knowledge they, they contain. Um, in order for print to be an efficient mode of circulation of knowledge, it has to elicit an active response. Uh, I'm already thinking here uh, um, of Lisa Jardine and Tony Grafton's and landmark study for action, how Gabriel Harvey read his Levy. Um, at the very least, printed material has to be read um, to perform their function, um, but ideally it has to be acted upon. Um, but what our contributors look at are, are really the physical interaction. So with print objects, such as the Turner books that you've mentioned, um, which are studied by uh, Jacqueline Reed Walsh in her volumes, um, or the Globes studied by Catherine Parker, or even the Volvel, which is this paper instrument which illustrates the cover of our book, um, all those objects need to be interacted with in order for the knowledge itself to be revealed. Um, the playful reading that is staged with the movable books in uh, um, Jacqueline Ridwall's study, um, what I find fascinating is that um, every time that you, uh, uh, the reader will interact with them, um, the story will be reinvented. So just for listeners, just imagine that um, those are constructed uh, with flaps and a reader will flip over various flaps and every time they will reveal a new Im imagery and a new text. So every time they're turning the flaps in turn, um, they will create a new narrative. Um, and the narrative itself, as um, Jacqueline Ridwalsh um, shows in, in the chapter, um, is reshaped according to the political or the religious context. And you have um, the same sort of um, illustrations that will be um, accompanied by different texts, uh, depending on when, when they're being published. Um, and if we think of globes um, with um, Catherine Parker's uh, chapter, I think it is important to remember the three-dimensionality that print can take. Um, and um, in, in her case, obviously, she's looking at globes. So um, some listeners might be um, interested of, in, in knowing why we think that uh, a globe is a print instrument. Well, um, if you look at how the globes are being made, um, it is a printed um a sheet of paper that is cut out and then pasted over a support. And um, 
Catherine Parker really shows beautifully how the globe becomes meaning maker um, in many ways. It, it acts as a social symbol, um, as a symbol of the colonial expansion of Britain, uh, as well as of the fragility of geographical knowledge, um, because they get outdated very quickly, those uh, beautiful globes that are throning in the middle of the country house um, in Britain. Um, but um, yeah, so the, this first um, first dimension of um, um, of performing knowledge is is the fact that um, all those objects need to be interacted with um, to give meaning. The second um, aspect I would say is that print itself serves as a stage. Uh, Craig Spence demonstrates um, in in his chapter how pamphlets and broadsides were formatted to sensationalize the news of accidental death. Um, and the interesting thing is that you have a, a really a, a wide variety of ways in which um, the sensationalization sorry, occurs. Um, sometimes they use statistical representation, sometimes they use inflammatory language um, or attention-grabbing imagery. Um, so different choices are being made to um, actually stage um, the knowledge in print. And to understand how those choices are made, um, we, you have to look at who makes it and who gathers it and who are the actors um, behind those choices. Um, James Asher um, in his volume considers um, the very atomic level of the page. Um, and he tracks um, some of the actors of the printscape that are um, very often considered as having no agency. And that is the compositors. So the people who are um, typesetting um, in the 18th century. Um, and there again, um, James Asher reveals that um, actually those compositors were making active choices uh, and that the composition of a page um, was the result of um, technical decisions of intellectual choices, but also of commercial factor. Um, if you do not have a specific type in possession because it's too expensive, you will just use another one. Um, and um, finally, the, the inclusion of um, advertising prospectuses uh, within books, um, which is studied in our final chapters by David Duff, are key mise-en-scene of the book to come, uh, which stages a, a contract between the author and his intended readers. You know, it's a print that promises more print. Um, and um, just as Benedict was saying earlier, we've built the indexed again here uh, um, to so that people can navigate through the volume uh, by looking for specific print forms. Um, I've already mentioned how challenging it was to find um, minor formats in, in library and archives catalogues. And so uh, we wanted to remedy to this problem in our volumes. So we've included um, index entries such as pamphlets, um, which not only give you the reference of where the topic is discussed, but we've included specific um, titles for those pamphlets as well, so that um, people can can find as um, different types of uh, of performed shapes. Well, on that promise of more print, um, I'd like to to kind of come back um, to what Louisiane you already brought up at the beginning of our interview, and that's really the the kind of call um, that you put out there um, in the volume about where where the field of book history um, and its kind of interactions with intellectual history is really going. Um, and I'd like to think about the contribution of the volume to the field, which is, which is significant. Um, 
How do you really see the, the kind of transdisciplinary exploration of the British printscape that you have in forms, formats, and the circulation of knowledge shifting some of the perceptions of scholars working on early modern print culture? And what do you really see as being the next steps for this line of inquiry? I mean, that, that might be your own um, kind of forthcoming projects, um, but also where you kind of see this going perhaps in, in the longer term trajectory. Um, well, we we really hope it, it will um, it will reinforce perception of the level level of playfulness um, that was happening in in the printed world between the readers and the books and and those who were producing the books, um, and also the level of performance that was involved that Louisiane just talked about. Um, uh, basically, we we hope that people concentrate a little bit more on how messy the whole business was. Um, but that's not um, that's that's actually something that that scholars of the history of the books are grappling with with now. Um, there um, there's a general trend towards trying to recover the imaginative variety of of the trade. Um, many excellent studies um, dedicated to the diffusion of knowledge in manuscript have already established this, um, and they've already established that. Print did not replace manuscript at the period we're looking at. Um, instead, it opened new ways of quickly copying knowledge to sell it to as large a readership as possible, um, thereby opening uh, a first information age. Um, this this meant that there were lots of choices to make, choices of titles, structuring of layout, choices on the body of paper, the material reality of the book was very pliable to a range of imaginative variety. And, and I, I, we hope that this is going to become a real focus of, of book history. And it, it was dependent on the messy tensions between the actors of the trade. Um, I think there's an increasing interest in the line of um, David McKittrick works on manuscript for how much readers were continuing to accept a measure of compromise. Um, they were they were still keen to accommodate with this messiness, um, and I, I think that's. Uh, we hope that this is what you know what the audience of the book, be they researcher in book history or you know scholars of the history of copyright or readers interested in the material circulation of knowledge. Um, I, I hope that's what they take away uh, first and foremost from the book. And um. I'd say on my part that um, we'd also like to see um, a, a shift a happening where book history um, is not only its own discipline, but it serves as, a, as an open method employed across subjects. You know, in a very similar way that um, digital, digital humanities are being discussed as either their own field of inquiry or as a set of tools that um, can be employed across the humanities. I feel that um, um, print studies can be a methodology that um, any textual scholar can employ convincingly, um, be they arts market historian or historian of ideas in our case. But um, I think I think they would benefit just a, a wide variety of, uh, of disciplines. And as I mentioned earlier, we have this invitation in our introduction that um, the Printscape um, is enlarged 
and also that the geographical areas of studies be enlarged, that um, we move on from looking at um, European, the European market um, in isolation and that we look much more widely at the global, global uh, printscape. I think that that's another of um, our wishes, um, I suppose. Well, on that note, and before I let you both um, go and enjoy your evening, I was wondering if you could just let us have a, a glimpse of what perhaps you're both currently working on. Um, I'm I'm continuing in in that research around messiness. Actually, um, I'm looking at um, drawing manuals, um, which you know, which are very dirty books for the most of them because they've been used and deformed um, by. Um, pinholes, stains, paint stains, um, added copies, etc. So I'm I'm looking at how knowledge was performed and how it actually deformed the book by use um, in the workshop, in the workplace. Um, and um, I'm also looking at how all those manuals, be they drawing manuals or geometry manuals, military um, perspective manuals, um, how they were all used in a way that circulated knowledge in a very tight-knit community, much tighter than our, um, you know, our cataloging in different disciplines um, helps us to see. And and I suppose I'm, I'm taking the uh, other route away from messiness and towards a very high standardization um, and looking at the current reformatting that is occurring. Um, in my current role at the Royal Society, I, I focus on the creation of digital resources, um, which means that um, what I'm, I'm doing is really um, trying to uh, fit this messy early modern collections um, into the digital world. So um, uh, the latest uh, digital interactive version that we've released is um, our copy of Robert Hooke's Micrographia, and I would invite everyone to discover it online. It's a, a free resource that you can find. Uh, but I'm also working on digitizing and, and transcribing a series of catalogues uh, of the 18th century collections of objects and books of, of the Royal Society. Um, and what I hope that this does is um, provide academics with um, the tools to look at how the Royal Society collections evolve over time. Um, and in relation to this, I'm, I'm working on a chapter at the moment which discusses um, early modern collections in the digital age, uh, which should be published in a volume on, on the collecting habits of early modern learned academies in 2021. So I suppose, yes, trying to fit the uh, round the round pegs of uh, early modernity into uh, the very square holes of uh, the digital age. Well, on those very big question marks of messiness and playfulness, I will let you both go. Thank you so much, Louisiane and Benedict, for being on the podcast today. The fantastic, uh, wonderful volume that everyone should go and pick up a copy of is Forms, Formats and the Circulation of Knowledge, British Printscapes Innovation 1688 to 1832, published by Brill in 2020. Thank you both for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much. And I think we couldn't dream of a, a more fitting title than uh, New Books Networks to talk about this book. Absolutely. Well, we'll have to find some new books to talk about then in the, in the forthcoming years.